I heard the story of a young man who had gone off to college. He had gone to Harvard, as a matter of fact. It was the 1960s, and his father was an English professor at a college up in the Northeast. And this young man, over the period of time that he had been gone from September till the Christmas holidays, over that period of time, he had picked up quite a bit of Harvard culture. Uh, He had acquired that Boston accent that's so distinct. He was came home wearing a, a Boston tweed jacket, and he had begun to smoke a pipe. Now, through conversations with his son, this father had realized um, via their, their phone conversations and, and letters that their son had become just a little too focused on the rapper. And so when the young man came home for Christmas, his father went to the train station to pick him up, and his son said to his dad, hello, father, and I can't do a Boston accent, but insert Boston accent there. And the father noticed that Boston accent. And at home, the old English professor had offered his son a cigar. And, and his son took the box of cigars and saw that they were $5 cigars. And this was the 1960s. And he gladly took one of those expensive cigars. And as he took the paper off of the cigar and he put the cigar in his mouth, the end popped off. And as the end popped off, he said to his dad, you can tell this is a good cigar because it's been rolled properly. If it hadn't, then the end would have crushed. And his father said, "Mm mm-hmm. And then he said to his dad, did you notice how that cigar lit slowly? That shows that it's been properly cured, has just the right amount of moisture. And he said, you know, dad, good cigars have that. And so the dad said, sure, son. The father uh, continued listening to his son and the son began to smoke the cigar and that smoke just sort of suspended in the air with that fine aroma and the son continued to talk about what a fine cigar this was. Well, the dad listened to his son for a while and eventually he said to him, son, did you know you're smoking a 75 cent cigar? And the son picked up the wrapper and he said, no, dad, look, look, it's a $5 cigar. And the dad said, well, actually, that's a $5 wrapper, but it's a 75-cent cigar. I know for a fact because I unrolled the 75-cent the, uh, cigar, and I put it in the $5 wrapper. And then the father leaned back in his chair, and he began to instruct his son. His son couldn't say a word because he had stepped right into his father's trap. And so his father cautioned his son about placing his focus on the wrapper and not giving attention to the heart. You see, the young man said that even though he was thoroughly rebuked by his father, he was grateful. He could just imagine his father before he came unrolling or unwrapping those cigars and and then wrapping the the 75 cent cigar in the $5 wrapper. And he said it, it was powerful for him to think about because his dad taught him the difference between the reality and the wrapper. Do you have trouble with that sometimes? Sometimes we do. We, we get mixed up. We begin to make the focus on the external things. We begin to, to, to evaluate people, ourselves and other people, based on the wrapper, not necessarily the reality. And James is going to deal with this very issue in James chapter 2. I want to invite you to turn your Bibles to James chapter 2. If uh, you'd like, take a pew Bible there in front of you. You can turn to page 1071 you'll remember that James wrote to Jewish Christians. And these Christians would have been accustomed to different classes of people. 
if you read the New Testament, you could see how Jewish Christians looked down on the Samaritans, for example. So in this culture, the weak and the poor were often marginalized. Let's look together at James 2, beginning in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves? And become judges with evil thoughts. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, didn't God choose the poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom that he has promised to those who love him? Yet you have dishonored the poor. Don't the rich oppress you and drag you into court? Don't they blaspheme the good name that was invoked over you? Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. If, however, you show favoritism, you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the entire law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. So if you do not commit adultery, but you murder, you are a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of freedom. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has not shown mercy. Mercy triumphs. Over judgment. In this text, James teaches that our faith eclipses our social differences. Our faith eclipses our social differences. Well, how? How does our faith eclipse or overcome our social differences? Let's look in verses one through four. James commands believers here to hold on to the faith that they have without favoritism. Notice James says that the basis of this faith is. Faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So this is not faith based in an apparition. This is not faith based on some fairy tale. No, James says we have placed our faith on Jesus Christ. And James calls him glorious. For imagine, Jesus left heaven. He came to this earth and he lived a perfect life. He was nailed to a cross, buried, and he came back to life, conquering death. So James calls him glorious. This risen Lord is the basis of their faith. And it ought to order the way that that they live. So James is arguing that faith in Jesus doesn't mix with showing favoritism. Now the word for favoritism is used only four times in the New Testament, once here, and in the other three places, it's all used to show that God doesn't show favoritism or partiality to people. So it isn't okay to show partiality to some for all people are equal. That's what scripture teaches. Now, does that sound familiar to you? All people are equal? Well, it it should. You think back to our founding documents, the Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. You see, that's a biblical idea. That's an idea that comes from scripture. Our founding fathers didn't invent that uh, 200 and something years ago. No, this is, this is an idea that, that God taught. All people are created equal. Now, to illustrate what James is saying, he gives a hypothetical. He says, suppose somebody comes into church and they are wearing some fine threads. I mean, maybe Burberry or Gucci. I mean, it's clear they have a lot of money. They, they got a lot of cash. And then suppose a poor man comes in and this poor fella, clothes are filthy. 
just filthy. And it's obvious that, that he doesn't have any money. And James says, suppose you go to the man who's affluent and you say, hey, come here. I, I've, I've got a perfect seat for you. Now, if you were going to a game or, or to a concert, that'd be the front row or the 50-yard line in a church. I think it's the back pew most of the time. But anyways, you, you say to the, the fellow who, who has money, you, you take this fine seat. You say to the fellow who's poor, um, stand over there. Or there's a little room under my chair. If you want to sit on the floor here, I, I guess you could. If you do that, James says that you are acting just like the world acts. You are judging a person based on the rapper. You're, you're judging a person based on the things that do not matter. And in showing favoritism like that, these believers looked more like non-Christians than Christians. And so James confronts them. They were showing respect and deference to the affluent, but they were showing disdain, disrespect for those who didn't have much. And James is direct. It's evil, pure and simple. There's no place for this kind of partiality among the people of God. It shouldn't happen. Now, incidentally, this is an aside, but if you look at this passage, it's obvious in this text that James expects his readers to be a part of a New Testament church. All throughout the New Testament, you see that. People who know Jesus are expected to be a part of the church, the body of Christ, and a local expression of the body of Christ, which is a local church. And we see that in this passage, just like we do as we read all throughout the New Testament. So here James has painted this ugly picture of faith and favoritism side by side. And then he confronts these Christians, do not behave this way. So how does our faith eclipse our social differences? Well, from verses one through four, faith and favoritism are incompatible. They don't go together. Our faith must overcome. It must eclipse our tendency to show partiality. It must eclipse our social distinctions. Faith and favoritism do not go together. A match and gasoline, a two-year-old and a knife. Faith and favoritism do not mix Do you remember when you were in school? Some of you are in school, and this won't be hard to remember. For others, it'll take a little more work. But you remember that there was a group of of kids who were, they were the popular kids. They were were kind of on top. And then there was a group of kids who were were at the bottom, kind of the, the people that were rejected, kind of left on the margins. And what James is saying to these believers is it may be like that out there. It may be like that out in the world but it must not be like that in here. It must not be. For faith and favoritism do not go together. So let's think about this in our lives. Do you show favoritism? Do do you show favoritism? We we need to ask ourselves some tough questions. Do do I show partiality to to people who are rich or do I show partiality to to even people who are poor? It, It could go both ways. Or do I show partiality to this ethnicity or that ethnicity or to this type of person or that type of person? You could could fill in the blanks. That's not okay. Next, I think it's important for us as parents to think about what we're teaching our kids in this regard. So parents, model love and respect for all people. Don't teach your kids that your family is a little bit better than those folks over there. You know, you teach them subtly by the attitudes that you have, by by how you treat people. You're probably not going to say that directly, but it's the attitudes that you have. Let's suppose that 
You're driving through to get fast food and the lady at the window who's serving you, you treat her disrespectfully. Your kids pick up that. They see that. It speaks. It speaks volumes to them. No, show this woman or whoever you come into contact with respect and honor. Model this kind of love and commitment for all people and you'll be helping your kids recognize not to focus on the rapper. Our faith eclipses our social differences because faith and favoritism don't go together. In what other ways uh, does our faith eclipse our social differences? Let's look in verses five and six. James commands believers to listen. And then he points out three ways that God has special concern for the poor. The first way is this, they are chosen by God. That's what uh, uh, James says here in verses five and six, they're chosen by God. The very same word for chosen is used in Acts thirteen seventeen of God's selection of the nation of Israel. Does this mean that all people who, who don't have means are, are going to be saved? Well, of course not. A person's only saved when, when they turn to Christ. We, we recognize that all throughout scripture. However, it has been noted historically, and, and you, can, you can look at the data and the research Generally, poor, poor folks are more likely to, to be receptive to the gospel. That, that's, that's a reality historically. Second, James says that the poor are rich in faith. What does he mean? He means that if a poor person has the Lord Jesus, they have everything. So a person could be materially wealthy and have millions, millions, billions of dollars, whatever you want to talk about. But if that person doesn't know Jesus, they have far less than a person who has the Lord, but has little material means. Third, James says that the poor are heirs of the kingdom. The poor are a part of the kingdom of God. In fact, in Luke 4, 18, Jesus said that he came to preach the good news to the poor. So a person lacking material means, who may not have much here, but who knows Jesus, so he's got a great inheritance coming. He's a part of the kingdom of God. So these believers were dishonoring the poor. And James is saying it's not okay. So how does our faith eclipse our social differences? According to verses five through six, faith displays regard for the poor. Faith displays regard for the poor. You ever watch a a mom with her little preschool daughter? Maybe a four-year-old girl. She's taking care of her. She's teaching her, working on her ABCs. If there's an issue that comes up at her preschool, she's talking to the teacher, working things out. She's washing clothes and washing clothes and washing clothes. She's cooking meals and washing dishes and and all those things. You can watch that mama with her four-year-old daughter and you can have no doubt she cares deeply for that little girl. Well, all throughout scripture, we see from Old Testament to New Testament that God has a heart for the poor. He has a heart for those who are weak, those who have been ignored, forgotten, or abused. Among the Jewish people, in fact, he made provision for the poor. For example, in Leviticus 23, 22, he said, And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. Now, here's an example of God's concern for the poor. Those with land and with resources were to leave some for those who didn't have these things. And those in need were to go and to gather and work and and gather the the, the crops that had been left on the edges, the the gleanings that, that were still left in the field. 
And so we see God's heart for the poor, God's concern for the poor. So how do we live in light of, of this truth? Well, don't look down on people who have less than you. What you have, it's a gift from God. Well, whatever you have. Remember what we learned in James chapter 1, every good and perfect gift is from the Father of heavenly lights. It's from God. So, so everything that you have, it's truly a gift. So don't, don't look down on people who have less. Do you look at people who, who don't have as much as you as kind of inferior? Just not quite there. You know what I mean. This is the way the world thinks. It's not the way we think in the church. It's not okay. Next, we ought to demonstrate concern for the poor. Instead of looking down on people who have less, we ought to look for ways to help, to serve. Perhaps you know about a job that, that you could help somebody find who's in need of a job, or maybe you could meet an, an immediate physical need. We, we want to demonstrate concern. Our faith eclipses our social differences because faith displays genuine concern for the poor. In what other ways does our faith eclipse our social differences? Let's look at the end of verses 6 and verse 7. James strengthens his argument by reminding these believers that the wealthy, in fact, had harmed them. And he gives three ways this had happened. First, the rich had exploited these believers. To exploit means to oppress or to dominate. And the very same word is used one other time in the New Testament. That's in Acts 10.38 to refer to the way that Satan oppresses people. Second, the affluent had used the legal system against them. The affluent had uh, used their influence to to sway the courts in their favor. And so they were able to take land, for example, for, for debts, or they were able to overcharge interest or to, to uh, withhold wages. And their money and status, uh, status enabled them to, to do this through the courts, through the legal system. Third, the wealthy were blaspheming the name of Christ. It's probably that the wealthy folks were, were making fun of these believers and the Lord that they followed. So James says, wait a minute, remember, the people that, that you're trying to show partiality to, consider how they've treated you. Consider what they've done. Now, James isn't arguing that wealth is sinful. There were many faithful saints in the, in the Bible who have had wealth and, and been godly men and women. But James reminds these believers that the wealthy people that they were favoring were also people who weren't walking with God, people who were harming them. So how does our faith eclipse our social differences? According to verse 6 and 7, faith recognizes the foolishness of prioritizing the wealthy. Faith recognizes the foolishness of prioritizing the wealthy. To treat the affluent as if they are better is naive and unwise. It isn't acceptable among the people of God. I can remember many years ago, I took a group of teenagers on a mission trip to, to Arlington, Texas, a, a ministry called Mission Arlington. They started churches in in apartment complexes and low-income apartments. And we went to a couple of different apartment complexes and to, to do backyard Bible clubs, kind of a vacation Bible school setup. And just dozens and dozens and dozens of kids would come to these. And as we would leave with the church buses for the end of the day, the kids would chase after our, our buses and vans. And several years later, we took a church mission trip up to Minnesota to work with a church planner there. And, and we were doing a vacation Bible school in a park. It was a, a middle-class area. And what was so interesting is that there was so little interest by the kids who lived in those neighborhoods to come and to participate. There was some, but there was nothing like the kind of interest that we saw when we were at, at Mission Arlington, nothing at all. And what you see 
is that those kids already had so much, they, they weren't really looking for much else. You see, having wealth can make it harder to recognize our need for God. In Matthew 19, 23 through 24, Jesus said to his disciples, truly, I tell you, it will be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It isn't that God is against a person with wealth. It's just that wealth can lead to pride and to self-reliance. And those things don't lead us to God. They lead us away from him. So let's ask a couple of questions to help us think about these truths. First, if you are affluent, And compared to the world standards, compared to so many other people who live in the world, probably everyone in this room could be considered affluent when when you start that kind of a comparison. Do you use your resources and your influence for the good of others or only to advantage yourself? Do you use your resources and influence for the good of others? Do you strive to bless and help others? Or do you just focus on building your own kingdom? Next, do you treat people differently because they have money? Do you treat the wealthy with greater respect or honor? It's also possible that that someone who who didn't have a lot of money would treat those who who did have a lot of money with with disdain or disrespect. Neither is acceptable in the, the family of God. We should respect and honor all people. So our faith eclipses our social differences because faith recognizes the foolishness of prioritizing the the wealthy. And what other ways do we see our faith eclipse our social differences? Well, let's look in verses 8 through 13. James says that if you live the royal law, you do well. Now here James references Christ's command to love your neighbor as yourself. We see Jesus teaching this in Matthew 22, 39. And and Jesus really, he is quoting Leviticus 19, 18 when he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Now, James is countering an objection that he anticipates from his readers. Some of his readers are going to say to him, now, James, the only reason we were being so nice to these folks who had money is because we were just trying to, you know, love our neighbor as ourselves. We were just trying to show them the love of Christ. James anticipates that. And so he says to them, that's all good and fine. It would be great if you were treating folks without the same way. And so he wants to help them see that this Law of love applies across the board. Now remember, James's readers came from a Jewish background, and often, often there was an emphasis upon following the law, but the Jews would emphasize different aspects of the law. They didn't look at the law in unity often, but, but with distinctions. And so they would emphasize this part of the law, and they would almost ignore that part of the law. And so James is going to help them recognize that if you break one law, really, you're, just, you're guilty. You're guilty of, of breaking the whole law. So James is arguing in verse 10 that God's law must be followed completely. James wants these believers to realize that loving the rich while dishonoring the poor isn't okay. Partial obedience is disobedience. That's what James says. It's kind of like a chain. If you break one link of the chain, that chain's not much good. That's the way God's law is. The law is derived from one lawgiver. It's derived from God himself. To break one aspect of the law is to reject God's authority in our lives. So James illustrates this point. He says, the same God who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. Obviously, he's referencing the sixth and the fifth commandments here. And he says, if you don't commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you're still in violation of the law. For the same God who said this, also said that. And now in verse 12, James urges believers to really follow Christ. 
his, his law in their speech and in their actions, in the way they talk and in the way they behave. And these verses, James highlights two important truths that ought to shape our speech and actions. First, he reminds these believers of the coming judgment. One day, believers are going to stand before the judgment seat of God. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.10 for, for more on this. And we'll receive reward for the aspects of our lives that have honored God. So James reminds these believers, you're accountable to God for the way that you're living, for the way that you're treating people who are poor. Second, James reminds these believers that they will be judged by the law of freedom. This means the standard of God's word, the word that helps us to be free from sin, that frees us from from sin's dominion and oppression. It's the word that guides us in rejecting partiality and favoritism and guides us in respecting all people. In verse 13, he says, the one who shows no mercy will not receive God's mercy. In other words, if a person's unwilling to show people mercy, the reality is that he's never known the mercy of God. So if a person is unwilling to be merciful toward others, it's evidence that he's never received the mercy of God himself, that he's not truly a son of God, for he bears no family resemblance. For if God was his father, then surely he would be merciful. Now the one who shows mercy, well, when judgment comes, it'll be demonstrated that mercy triumphs, that his mercy will be evidence that he knew the Lord, that he was indeed a son of God. So how does our faith eclipse our social differences? From verses 8 through 13, faith seeks to live out Christ's law of love. Faith seeks to live out Christ's law of love. Our faith that's lived out doesn't seek to dodge parts of God's commands and say, you know what, hey, I'm going to do this part, but I'm going to leave that part out. No, faith that that seeks to really live out Christ's law, to, to love others, is not looking for loopholes. Now, we know what loopholes are. They're ways to try to avoid following the rules without getting into trouble. You know, a a business person might look for a loophole of some sort to to lessen tax burden. Now, my kids, they are fantastic at this loophole stuff. I can say to them, clean your room, clean your room. And so in a few minutes, I go to check on the progress. And what I see is there's no progress at all, perhaps regress, but definitely not progress. So I say, hey, didn't I say clean your room? Oh, daddy, I didn't know you meant now. Sure, sure. But you know what? We're just the same. We're we're just the same. When it comes to God's words, we're happy to obey parts, but we're happy to leave out other parts. The question is, do we really strive to love others, all people, people who are like us, people who are not, people who have money, people who don't? Do we strive to love all people with the love of Christ, to love them as we love our neighbor? That's the question at hand. So how should this affect our lives? Well, first, do you look for the loopholes when it comes to obeying God? To love some type of people and not another isn't okay. Christ says, love others as if they're your neighbor, as as you love yourself. Next, live with the reminder that you will stand before Christ at judgment. You will stand before him at judgment. Now, there are two different types of judgment in the Bible. There's a judgment where unbelievers will stand before God and they will be separated from him for all eternity. They'll receive for all eternity what they demanded here on earth, life without God. And that's a horrifying judgment. And it has eternal consequence. But there's another judgment, a judgment in which Christians will stand before the Lord 
those who have called out to Jesus for, for salvation. They'll stand before the Lord and they'll be judged and rewarded for, for their good works, for the ways that they've lived that has honored the Lord. James wants his believers to remember, you're going to stand before Christ. You're going to give an account for the way that you've lived. You can look more about that judgment in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 12 through 15, if, if you want to read more about it. Next, seek to love others within the church regardless of social differences. Seek to love others within the church regardless of social differences. Seek to live out Christ's command of love whether somebody has money, whether they don't, whether somebody looks like you or whether they don't. Whatever, whatever might create division or distinction among the people of God, it's not okay. Demonstrate love for all people. Consider a church where we really do love all people like this. A church where we treat all people, whether they have a lot or they don't have much at all with respect and with dignity. A church where a person with very little could walk in and feel welcomed and loved and cared for. A church that's not focused on skin color. A church that's not focused on bank accounts. Any social distinction, but who really loves all people. Now that's a church that's not focused on the rapper, and that's the church that God has called us to be. Now imagine those of us who call on the name of Jesus, living this same standard out, even in the world, where, where we treat all people with respect and honor. Think of the opportunities to share the gospel that could bring us when we're making it not about the rapper, but about the reality of who a person is, even when we're living out there. You see, our faith, the gospel, eclipses, it overwhelms, it overcomes the social distinctions that would divide us. When we know Jesus, we have so much more in common than we could ever have to divide us. These superficial differences that the world wants to scream and shout about, they do not characterize the people of God. No, the gospel characterizes us. What changes do you need to make when it comes to respecting all people? Maybe it's a change of attitude. If that's the case, say, Lord, help my attitude to change. Help me to, to respect and, and love all people. Maybe, maybe parents, we need to focus on how we're modeling this to our children and teaching our children. Perhaps you need to purposely find ways to serve and love other people who could give you no advantage. Let's be the church. Let's be the church who lives out this truth right here amongst our church family. And let's be the, the, the church that lives this truth out, out in the world demonstrating the light of Christ, the, the call that God gives us to demonstrate his love to all people. No, there must be no favoritism in the family of God, not one ounce. If you're not yet a Christian, I, I want to say something to you. This passage says something very clearly. Judgment day is coming. There's no avoiding it. It's coming. You're going to stand before Jesus, and some of you are thinking, you know what? I'm going to tell him, look, I, I, I've got the scale. I'll set it out on the table. Jesus, I did a lot more good than bad. Jesus, aren't you going to give me a high five and say, come in? But the reality of it is this. If you're guilty of breaking one law, you're guilty of breaking it all. Oh, so my good works, they can never outweigh my sin. Why? Because God is completely pure. And just one sin, just one sin decues us. What hope do you have? This is the hope that you have. 
that God loved so much that he sent his own son to die in your place. That's the hope that you have. And that if you call out to Jesus in faith, your sins can be forgiven. They can be washed away. And when you stand before him at judgment day, you won't have to fear, am I going to be living eternally separated from him? No, you'll know when you stand before him that day, the blood of Christ covers everything. Oh, what joy and freedom there is in that. Today, friend, if you've never put your faith in Christ, why would you wait? You say to yourself, well, you know what? It's a long time. I'm not planning to to hit judgment day for a while. I got some years ahead of me. I'll wait. Friend, you don't know if you have years ahead of you. I don't know. You don't know. Why would you wait? Why would you say to Jesus, no? If you're here and you do not know the Lord, I plead with you. Won't you call out to him in faith? Won't you say to him, Lord, forgive me. I'm putting my faith in you. I want to follow you. And friend, if you call out to him like that, he'll save you and he'll never let you go. Even when you mess up, you'll always be safe in the hands of God. Let's pray together.